Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 59. Last week, I covered the people and places found in Genesis chapters 29 through 32. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm doing the same, picking up in the middle of Genesis chapter 32 and continuing through chapter 33. So let's get started. When I left off last week, I was about midway through chapter 32. In review, this chapter contains the narrative of how Jacob encounters angels and then asks God to protect him from Esau. At the end of the chapter, he wrestles through the night with a messenger from God. The next morning, his name is changed to Israel and he encounters God face to face. And, last week, I skipped over Seir to cover the Jabuk River, as I felt it was more pertinent to the other places and people in that episode. So this week, I'm circling back before plowing ahead. Mount Seir, well, it really wasn't one specific mountain, but believed to be a mountainous region. It ran, well, it runs, between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. And for those of you not terribly familiar with the Gulf, the Gulf of Aqaba is the body of water to the right of the Sinai Peninsula. To the left of the peninsula is the Gulf of Suez, and for the past century and a half, the Suez Canal. The Seir Mountains served as the boundary between the land allotted to the tribes of Edom and Judah. A few geographic archaeologists believe the mountains may also have served as the boundary between Egypt and the Canaanites. Pharaoh Amenhotep III has found on a monument at his temple at Salep, which was built sometime around 1380 BC, referenced an area known as Seir in the land of Shashu. This is believed to have been near Petra, Jordan, which of course is found in the mountains. Seir was actually mentioned earlier, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 6, as the home of Seir the Horite, for whom the mountains are named. It is thought that his progeny originally inhabited the area. His sons were listed in Genesis 36 as Lotan, Shobol, Zebon, and Anna. Later in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Israelites encounter Esau's descendants, who would become the Edomites. Next in the same chapter, we find out that the Edomites had fought and then destroyed the Horites. Once the Horites had been annihilated, Esau made his home there, as found in Genesis chapters 32, 33, and 36, as well as Joshua chapter 24. The prophet Balaam, found in Numbers 22, predicted a post-Exodus Israelite victory over many of the people who inhabited the Levant, including those in Seir. Also, Mount Seir is identified as the location where a number of Amalekites were obliterated by 500 Semonites, as seen in 1 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the people from Seir, probably the Edomites, allied with the Ammonites and the Moabites and set out to fight Jehoshaphat, who was from Judah. But God had other plans as he set an ambush against them and apparently confused them enough that they all killed each other. Then, in Isaiah chapter 21 and Ezekiel chapter 35, 
Seir is referenced as another name for Edom. The region is found in what is modern-day Jordan and is more commonly known as the Bilad al-Sharat. It begins to the south of the Wadi Majib, aka the River Arnon. The northern part of the mountain range contains mountains with peaks up to 4,000 feet or 1,200 meters above sea level, which is even more impressive when you consider that the feet of the mountains are really at the Dead Sea, so about 1,400 feet or 430 meters below sea level. I'll let you do the total math. The southern portion of the range tops out at about 5,000 feet or 1,500 meters above sea level and the area is fairly desolate, so other than what is found in the Old Testament, there really isn't much history to speak of. Next in Genesis 32, in verse 30, is a place called Penal. In order to make time for the final portion of this week's episode, I'm deferring the discussion of Penal until next week, so please be patient. In chapter 33, Jacob and Esau meet again and reconcile their differences, Esau receives a gift from Jacob. After this encounter, Jacob settles in Canaan, specifically in a place called Succoth, where he builds an altar. So, the next stop in this episode should be Succoth, but similar to Penal, I'm skipping the village this week and we'll cover it in the next episode. Overall, the history of this place is rather limited, and employing this tactic will allow me to cover the next place in depth while also sticking to my self-imposed time limit. After Sakoth in chapter 33 is a place called Sheshem. Actually, the end of 33 is a bit confusing. It reads, Jacob came safely to the city of Sheshem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Sheshem's father, he bought for 100 pieces of money the plot of land on which he had pitched his tent. So is Sheshem a city, a man, or both? Or does the passage refer to an unnamed city? The name is also found in Numbers 26 and Joshua 17, but these passages do not add any clarity. In Genesis, it's pretty clear that Sheshem was at least a man, as he's listed as the son of Hamar the Hivite, the beginning of chapter 34 shows that either Sheshem or Hamar was the prince of the region, and assumed therefore to be its ruler. And the mentions in Numbers and Joshua also show that he was a descendant of Manasseh, the dead king of Judah. So, the name was at least for a man. Then, elsewhere in the Old Testament, this time in Judges chapter 21, a geographic position was given which would also support that it was a city, too. In this passage, the location is specified as north of Bethel and Shiloh, more specifically on the high road, the one that went from Jerusalem to the northern districts. Joshua chapter 17 places it close to Michmethath, and Genesis 37 does the same for the village of Dothane. Other passages put it in the hill country of Ephraim and near Mount Gerizim, and, in Judaism, the name was thought to be similar enough to the Hebrew word Shechem, which means shoulder or saddle. This was interpreted to relate to the shape of the mountains and the valley between, located near the city. Then Josephus, who I haven't mentioned in some time, 
said that the city lay between Mount Abal and Mount Gerizim. This was the same location indicated on the Madaba map, even though it spelled the name slightly differently, as Shisham, with a Y in the first syllable. Other sources place it close to the town of Naples in Samaria, which it was. I'll get to why at the end of this episode. And the passage in chapter 33 wasn't its first mention. That was way back in chapter 12, as the place where Abraham encamped and built an altar. It was also here that God promised the land to his offspring. Then, in this chapter, Jacob bought the plot of land on which he had pitched his tent from the son of Hamor for 100 pieces of money. And the impact of that decision echoed for over a thousand years, maybe even today. It was in the city that Jacob's sons avenged their sister Dinah's rape by killing all the city's male inhabitants. I'll get a little deeper into that story next week. Later, in chapter 35, Jacob gathered the locals' idols and buried them under a tree, a specific tree that in Judges chapter 9 was named the Oak of the Sorcerer in some versions of the Old Testament. Apparently, he dug a well there, which isn't surprising because wherever you live, and his house was there, you need water, and in that era, that meant a well. Anyway, fast forward over 1,000 years to the New Testament book of John in chapter 4. In that chapter, Jesus used that same well. And now, 2,000 years after the mention in John, there is a well that is identified as one and the same as the one dug by Jacob. This well is located inside an Eastern Orthodox monastery that bears the same name in the modernly known city of Nablus. It's located on the west bank of the Jordan River in the country of Israel and is about 34 miles north of Jerusalem. More on the story from John in a minute. In Joshua chapter 24, when he was very old and just before he died, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Sheshem. He then recounts the stories found in the Pentateuch. Overall, he was attempting to get the Israelites to understand the greatness that they had achieved, but only due to the sovereign nature of God. Next, he tells the people not to serve other gods, specifically the gods from beyond the Euphrates that Abraham's father served, the gods of Egypt and the gods of the Amorites. The gathered people promised that they would not serve the other gods. He tells the Israelites that they will fail in their endeavor to only worship the one true God. And finally, he sends the people away. A monument of a single stone was erected under an oak, maybe Abraham's Oak of Morah, as a reminder of his words. Because of this, in the Abrahamic promise, Sesham was more revered than all the other cities in ancient Israel. Later, Sesham would become one of the cities of refuge, as seen in Joshua 20. As a reminder, a city of refuge protected a person who killed another person without intent or by mistake from anyone seeking blood revenge. The city, including its temple, was seized by the Israelites sometime before 1000 BC. Gideon's concubine lived there, and she was the mother of his son, Abimelech, as seen in Judges 8. She was from one of the upper-class Sheshemite families. 
After Gideon's death, Abimelech was made king. Then, in Judges 9, Gideon's youngest son, Jotham, made a speech on Mount Gerizim, where he warned the people of Sheshem about Abimelech's future tyranny. Three years later, the city rebelled, leading Abimelech to completely destroy it. Which leads us to the outside historic record, and in this case from excavations which show that the city was destroyed sometime around 1100 BC. Then, in the 10th century BC, the city was rebuilt and then probably served as the capital for the tribe Ephraim, as read in 1 Kings 4. Then, after the death of King Solomon in 1 Kings, it was here that the people of Israel convened and installed Rehoboam as king. And what followed was a disaster that ended with the secession of the ten northern tribes. More on that later. For this episode, know that Sheshem was made into a citadel by Jeroboam, and therefore became his capital. It was also the city where Joseph was buried. The really important thing to take away about this city, or village, or town, or whatever it is, is that it was first a city of the tribe of Manasseh, and then the first capital of the kingdom of Israel. But eventually the kings moved away, and the import of the city decreased. It entered into a dark period, with no significant mentions until Jeremiah 12, which was after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. But with the restoration of the Israeli kingdom, the city arose once again. The events connected with the restoration were to bring it again into prominence. On his second visit to Jerusalem, Nehemiah expelled the grandson of the high priest Elishib, along with many Jews who then evacuated to Sheshem. These Jewish pilgrims built a temple on Mount Gerizim, and with that Sheshem became the holy city of the Samaritans. This led to the seemingly permanent split between the Samaritans and the house of Judah. More on that in a future episode. Later, in the New Testament, specifically in John chapter 4, it was the city that Jesus spoke with the Samaritan woman drawing water from the well. But, for accuracy, the city in that passage is noted as Sychar. But the text goes on to clarify that Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. Later in the same chapter, the text shows how the Samaritans invited Jesus to stay there two days, and he did. Then, in Acts chapter 7, the city is believed to be the same as the place called Sesham, and the narrative also indicates the same. The city is thought to have been the one visited by Peter and John when they traveled between Samaria and Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8. So, that's the city within the biblical record, but what about outside sources? First, it must be recognized that the city, due to the prevailing geography, essentially being surrounded by higher ground, was vulnerable to attack. So, very early in its history, it was strongly fortified. There was a wall, built from Cyclopean stones, utilized from the early Bronze Age through the Late Bronze Age. Cyclopean stonework uses large limestone rocks and boulders carefully fitted together with no to minimal use of mortar, and the lack of mortar is key as the effects of weathering destroy mortar well before wearing away the stones. 
This is why such walls, built over 3,000 years ago, still stand today. What is known is that Sechem was a Canaanite city that was mentioned in the Armana letters. It has been historically paired with the modern city of Nablus, which by location aligns it with the archaeological site at Tel Balta in the Balta al-Balad, located on the west bank of the Jordan River in present-day Israel. According to uncovered artifacts, the ancient city of Sheshem dates back about 4,000 years, so to about 2000 BC. But the city is mentioned in the Ebla tablets found at Tel Mardik. Specifically, the Ebla tablets make mention of a deity known as Resa, whom the residents viewed as the primary deity for the area. Remember that these tablets date to between 2500 and 2250 BC, so they are a little older than the artifacts found in the city itself. Apparently, and like so many other towns, villages, and cities I've covered from this period, Sechem developed economically because of its location on vital trade routes that ran throughout the region. In the case of Sechem, this trade is thought to have consisted of local grapes, olives, wheat, livestock, and pottery. The route flourished between about 1900 and 1000 BC. Sechem was also mentioned on the Sebek Kua Stele. This is an Egyptian stele apparently erected during the reign of Sinesret III, who ruled Egypt between 1880 and 1840 BC. Then in the Armana letters, written in the mid-14th century BC, a town on the Sakmu, which is thought to be Sechem, was the capital of a kingdom ruled by someone known as Labaya. This guy was a Canaanite general who seemingly recruited mercenaries from the Habaru. Labaya was also the author of three of the Armana letters, and his name appears in 11 of the other 382 letters, where in total he was referred to 28 times. In these, the overriding theme of the letters is about Labaya and his dealings with the rebelling countryside of the Habaru. The city was also mentioned in a papyrus dated to the Egyptian Ramsesite period, specifically the 19th and 20th dynasties, which was during the 11th and 12th centuries BC. Fast forward a little over 1,000 years to the year 6 AD, when the town was brought by the Romans into their province of Syria. So, it was part of the Roman Syrian province when Jesus visited the well. Then, in 67 AD, many Samaritans from Sechem rebelled against the Romans as part of what became known as the Galilean Rebellion, which overall was a portion of the broader First Jewish-Roman War. Things didn't go so well for the rebels, as the city was probably destroyed by Sextus Petullius Cerulius, a Roman general, then the governor of Judea. Six years later, Vespasian commissioned a new city, known as Flavia Nepolis, to be built within about a mile or two kilometers west of the old city. It is this city, with a shortened name, that would become the modern Nablus. During the Emperor Hadrian's reign, the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim was restored and then converted to a temple for the Roman god Jupiter. At the same time, an early Christian community was established there, and it was the home of the theologian who in death would become known as Justin Martyr. As you would suspect, the plight of the early Christians in the area was fraught with danger, 
primarily from the more native Samaritans. After the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, the Roman Emperor seized the Samaritans' temple at Mount Gerizim and gave it to the local Christians, and this happened in the year 474. It was also after the Samaritans attacked the Christians. In 529, Roman Emperor Justinian I made Samaritism illegal and arranged for a protective wall to be constructed around the church. As a result, the same year, a Samaritan known as Julianus ben Sabar led a revolt, which by the next year had captured most of Samaria. In the process, the rebel Samaritans destroyed churches and murdered the priest and other church officials. Their control did not last because in 531, Justinian enlisted the help of the Geshenids and the revolt was completely suppressed. The surviving Samaritans were largely enslaved, with the remaining few others exiled. Two years later, Justinian had a citadel constructed on Mount Gerizim in order to protect the church from the raids of the few disgruntled Samaritans that remained in the area. Apparently that worked, as the history of the city went quiet for several centuries until the Arab-Islamic invasion of the 7th century AD. And during the Islamic and subsequent Ottoman periods up until the 20th century, so for about 1400 years, the city remained quiet. Other than the general events of the 20th century, which is too far broad of a way to phrase it, not much happened in session. There was an archaeological dig that began in 1903 and was led by the German Dr. Hermann Thierisch. The excavation uncovered Tel Balat, which would later be identified with the biblical city. And that's probably a good place to end the episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the history of the two places I skipped this week, along with the next set of people and places found in Genesis 33 and 34. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. And this week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. And I know I've said it many times, and the ratings show it, but doing so helps others to find the podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.